Welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. And I just want to say a few quick words before the launch of this terrific new report, brand new, uh, not just new this year, but uh, it's its first ever edition, the Parliamentary Monitor by Alice Lilly, Hannah White, and Jenny Hay. We're really proud of this one. And, and that's the, really the point of what I'm saying. We set out, I mean, really some time ago last year, to say what could we do to build on the success of Whitehall Monitor and Performance Tracker, our two big data-based publications. What could we do about Parliament to capture some of the things that we, we feel uh, should be known about it, from its cost to how it scrutinizes uh, government to how it passes legislation? How much of this could we capture in numbers and how much we could, do, could we dig into things that people think they know about Parliament but don't always? And so the product of all that and of very hard work but also incredibly clear thinking and a lot of new research is this document. And I'm going to hand over now to Hannah White, one of the authors and the, the excellent panel, and Alice is going to give us a great talk through. But I just wanted to say at the beginning that we really care about this one and are very pleased it came off. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. Um, so I'm Hannah White. I'm Director of Research here at the Institute, and a big welcome from me to everyone. Thank you for coming here today to help us launch the first edition of Parliamentary Monitor. And this is something that we intend to become an annual report and an annual event, so we look forward to seeing you again next year. <laughs> I want to start by thanking everyone who helped us put this report together, many people inside and outside Parliament. It would be invidious to name names, but it's great to see lots of you in the audience. Uh, this report would not have happened without you, and we are really grateful for your help and support. Um, and you will be hearing from us again soon to get your candid feedback on the report and to, to hear your views on what we should do more of next year, what we might do differently, and uh, what we can add to the report. So as far as today goes, um, as Bronwyn said, Alice uh, Lilly is going to uh, give us a short presentation of some of the key findings from the report. Um, uh, apologies in advance if some of the text and the graphics is quite small. Um, Hopefully you'll, it will give, be sufficient to give you a flavour of, of the report and just give you an incentive to go and look on our website. The PDF of the report is there to download right now and later today there will be eight HTML pages with all the graphics and, and everything so you can just browse at, at will. Um, following Alice's presentation, I'm delighted uh, that we have been joined today by Mark Darcy, who's parliamentary correspondent for the BBC, and uh, Charles Walker, who, as you will all know, is, has been MP for Bookswarm since 2005 and is chair of the Procedure Committee. So he spends a lot of his time thinking about some of the sorts of issues that we raise in Parliamentary Monitor. And he's also vice chair, I believe, of the 1922 Committee. Um, so we're going to start with Alice's presentation. We'll then move to some, some questions and discussion with the panel, and then we will open up to questions from the floor, um, and we will wrap up by 2 o'clock. So that's when you can get away. So, with no more ado, I will hand over to Alice. Well, thank you, Hannah, and thank you as well to all of you for coming along today to help us launch Parliamentary Monitor, our new report looking at what data can tell us about Parliament. As Bronwyn already mentioned, some of you might know that here at the Institute, we have long had an interest in what data can tell us about how Parliament is performing. And we wanted to expand this approach to use data to explore the work of the UK Parliament. And this matters because Parliament is at the core of our representative democracy. 
And there's also a fundamental tension in the relationship between Parliament and government. One part of Parliament's role is to pass the government's legislative programme, but another part is to scrutinise government and hold it to account. So an effective Parliament is essential to an effective government. Now much about Parliament's role can't be measured, but data can help Parliament to ensure that it is working as effectively as possible. It can show what Parliament is doing and how it's working. And this report, which for the first time brings together a range of parliamentary data in one place across a consistent time period, shows the sort of analysis that Parliament <coughs> itself should draw on to understand its performance. Now, there is a wealth of data and charts in the full report, uh, but I'm not going to drag you through all of them this afternoon. I'm just going to focus on a few of our key findings. Last financial year, the day-to-day -day running of both Houses of Parliament, shown there in purple and with value next to it, uh, that value should read 550.8 million. Now, comparing Parliament to other organisations and institutions is tricky, given the unique role that Parliament plays. But it's possible to give a sense of the scale of Parliament's spending. So here, we have compared Parliament's running costs to the administration budgets of government departments. So these cover the basic running costs of a government department. Things like its staff and not the policies or programmes that it's responsible for. So we can see that last financial year, the running costs of Parliament, which is responsible for scrutinising the work of all government departments, were equivalent to those of just one mid-sized government department, like DEFRA or the Department for Education. Now that figure, that 551 million, it should read, includes the cost of everything that it takes to keep Parliament working, from its 3,000 staff to its security provision. And it also includes the cost of MPs and peers' expenses and MPs' salaries. But combined, these represented less than half of the total cost of running Parliament. Now, of course, the cost of running Parliament is not the same thing as its value. But understanding how much it costs to run Parliament is a vital first step in assessing how it's working and in building public trust in it as an institution. If we move away from cost, in this report we also looked at everything that happened in Parliament in the 12 months following the June 2017 Queen's speech. On average, each of the bills that the government passed in the year from the Queen's speech was debated for 16 hours across both houses, although some, such as the urgent bills relating to Northern Ireland highlighted there, were debated for considerably less time. And the longest debated bill there at the top was the Data Protection Act at just over 68 hours. But the EU withdrawal bill, <laughs> which finished its parliamentary stages almost a year to the day from the Queen's speech, was debated for 273 hours. So that's four times as long as the Data Protection Act and about 16 times as long as the average of all these other bills. And what's more, the withdrawal bill was also responsible for a high proportion of the divisions that took place in the Commons Chamber. 42% of all votes held were on the withdrawal bill alone. 
And this amount of time on the withdrawal bill is perhaps not surprising given its fundamental significance. But the fact that it took so long to pass will have a knock-on effect for other Brexit legislation. The government estimates that 800 pieces of secondary legislation are required to prepare UK law for Brexit. And taking so long to pass the withdrawal bill has limited the time available to get this secondary legislation passed, something I believe the Permanent Secretary of DEXU has been talking about this morning. So Brexit dominated time in both chambers, but it also dominated much of the time spent on committee corridor. So here we can see the proportion of each Commons Committee's inquiries that related to Brexit, highlighted in yellow. And overall, one in eight inquiries related to Brexit. Now this was most true of the committees responsible for scrutinising departments whose workload is heavily affected by Brexit, like, as you might imagine, the exiting the EU and international trade committees highlighted at the bottom. But even for those committees whose work might not seem as obviously related to Brexit, it was still a key theme. One in ten, the work of the Work and Pensions Committee, for example, there in the middle, concerned Brexit. Now, the government's lack of a Commons majority constrained it when it came to passing legislation. The government has identified these 12 bills that it believes are necessary to prepare for Brexit. But progress on these has been slow as disagreements have persisted within the cabinet and the government has tried to stave off potentially damaging defeats in the Commons. By the time that Parliament rose for summer recess back in July, just a third of government's Brexit bills, the four highlighted, were on the statute book. Of the remaining eight bills, two on trade and customs had only just made it from the Commons to the Lords before recess and both are due to receive their second reading there shortly. One other Brexit bill was in draft and four others were only in white paper form. Our government has indicated that it wants to get most of these bills through by the end of March 2019 in case the EU, the UK leaves the EU with no deal. But this will be a big ask for Parliament. And we've seen government previously delay Brexit legislation, like on customs and trade, to stave off the possibility of defeat. And in fact, in that, it has been largely successful. Up until summer recess, the government was only defeated twice in the Commons. But it will be harder for them to keep doing this as the Article 50 deadline looms, even though more knife-edge votes look likely. And the impact of government's minority status in the Commons has also constrained the sorts of bills that it has tried to pass that have nothing to do with Brexit. Now, in total... The government introduced 35 bills to Parliament in the year following the Queen's speech, and 19 of them passed. And the vast majority of bills that passed, believe it or not, didn't relate to Brexit. Four of them were the kinds of routine financial legislation that all governments have to pass. Finance bills giving effect to budgets or supply bills that authorise government spending. Another four bills were more urgent bills related to Northern Ireland, reflecting the continued lack of an executive at Stormont. And the remaining non-Brexit legislation was not necessarily of the type or scale that you would expect of a government at the beginning of a new parliament. So usually the government in the first session of a new parliament might bring forward major legislation to, say, reform public services or to enact its own major manifesto commitments. But instead, in the past year, 
we've seen government bring forward legislation on relatively minor policy areas. And some of the Conservative Party's key <coughs> manifesto commitments on things like grammar school and adult social care were not even in the Queen's speech. So government is legislating, and it is legislating on things other than Brexit. But the realities of governing as a minority have constrained its ambition. As it's more vulnerable to defeat in the Commons, the government has opted to focus its energies and political capital on Brexit. But our analysis finds that Parliament was still very active in the year following the 2017 Queen's speech. And what's particularly interesting is that backbenchers were very active, and more so than in recent sessions. So this greater backbench activity was particularly visible in the higher number of parliamentary questions tabled by MPs in the year since the Queen's speech. So in total, some 55,000 parliamentary questions were tabled over that period. That is a 42% increase on the number in the previous session. Most of this increase was driven by written questions, shown in the slightly lighter green. Around 51,000 written questions were tabled, compared to 35,000 in the 2016-17 session. And as you can see, the departments with the highest number of written questions are those responsible for delivering key public services, like the Department of Health and Social Care and the Home Office. In the dark green, we have oral questions. Around 4,800 oral questions were asked over the same period. Now, as the time afforded to oral questions is limited, there tends to be little variation between sessions. But the number of questions asked doesn't actually reflect the number of questions submitted by MPs. And in fact, 11 times as many oral questions were submitted by MPs as were actually asked. Now, backbenchers were also granted more urgent questions in the year since the Queen's speech than in previous parliamentary sessions. We look at the number of urgent questions per sitting day in previous sessions, we can see that historically it's been pretty low. But since about 2013-14, there's been a sustained increase. And in fact, the rate tripled between 2013-14 and the last year. 114 urgent questions were granted by the Speaker in the period since the Queen's speech. That's one urgent question every 1.4 sitting days. And there's a similar story when it comes to emergency debates. Now, if you look at the incredibly small scale that we have going down the axis, you can see that these are pretty rare. Now, in the year since the Queen's speech, however, the increase was such that there was one emergency debate every 12 sitting days. And in fact, the data shows that backbenchers requested more emergency debates in the year from the Queen's speech than they did in the previous four parliaments put together. So backbenchers have clearly been more active, perhaps unsurprisingly at a time of considerable political tumult, and also with a speaker who has strongly emphasised his belief in the rights of backbenchers. Now, another key parliamentary activity is the scrutiny that's conducted by select committees. This year, the time taken to establish select committees after the election created a significant gap in this scrutiny. Many inquiries had to be brought to a premature end in April 2017 when the election was called, and the lengthy process of electing chairs and setting up new committees 
meant that many didn't start their inquiries until mid-September, an almost six-month gap. But of the chairs who were elected to the Commons departmental and cross-cutting committees in July of last year, a high proportion had previous ministerial or shadow ministerial experience. Four chairs are previous secretaries of state. Eight are former ministers of state. And a further eight previously served as shadow secretaries of state. And this kind of ministerial experience helped to inject greater understanding of government into the committee system as well as contributing to increased media coverage of committee work, a key source of influence. A particularly unique aspect of select committees' work is the fact that governments have made a commitment to respond to committees' reports within 60 days. And this is important because it gives the opportunity for a real dialogue between Parliament and government. But the data shows that the government is not generally meeting its own target. Across all committees, the government took an average of 75 days to respond to committee reports, 15 days over its self-imposed standard. But alongside all of the activity that's been taking place in Parliament, there's also been rising concern over whether its processes and procedures are working well enough. There was particular concern about private members' bills. 236 of these were introduced by parliamentarians in the year following the Queen's speech. That's almost seven times as many as government bills. But while most of those government bills are likely to pass, only a tiny fraction of private members' bills are likely to make it to the statute book. One estimate shows that just 5% of private members' bills made it into law in the last two decades. So while it may appear from this that backbenchers can and do legislate, in reality, their ideas have little chance of becoming law. And in this session, questions around private members' bills processes were highlighted by the blocking of a backbench bill on upskirting that was later picked up by the government following a media outcry. And there have also been questions about voting. In the year from the Queen's speech, Almost 48 hours of the Commons time, that's equivalent to six sitting days in the Commons, was spent going through the division lobbies. And there are concerns too about how the process of voting in person affects those MPs who need to be absent from the chamber, in particular those on baby leave, an issue reignited by the high-profile breaking of a pairing arrangement on the customs bill, and a much-delayed debate on the idea of trialling a proxy voting system is due to be held soon. But these events and this kind of data raise questions about how well parliamentary procedures are understood by the public and whether they are working as well as possible. So the data in our report tells us what Parliament cost to run and what it did in the year following the 2017 Queen's speech. But it also raises some much longer-term questions. Does Parliament have the resources and time that it needs? Is Parliament doing enough to be understood by the public? And are parliamentary procedures working well enough? Now, ultimately, it will be up to parliamentarians to think about their answers to these questions. And there are questions that are unlikely to go away. But we hope that the data and the analysis in our report will aid their thinking. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Alice. Um, so, I would just like to kick off the discussion by picking up on that last point that Alice was making, um, it being often the case that when there is a question about how well Parliament's procedures are working, that question rapidly falls into the lap of the gentleman on my left. <laughs> so, I was just wondering, you know, we've had, well, at the end of the, of the parliamentary term, just before the summer, a sort of, it seemed to be a sort of a, a rapid-fire series of things which got into the media about how parliamentary procedures were working. There was the proxy vote question which was raised by the, the pairing issue. There was the um, upskirting bill um, controversy where, you know, whatever you think of Sir Christopher Chope's reasons for blocking that bill, it did rather highlight some of the issues that your committee had been picking up um, for some time now around private members' bill procedure. So what's your view of this question about whether Parliament's procedures are working well enough? I think Parliament's procedures actually hold up to scrutiny in, in most cases, but private members' bills is, I still think, one of the great unreformed areas of, of, of parliamentary business. But I think you can lay most... i try not to use a word that would be offensive, but most screw-ups really at the door of government. Government uh, often tries to play fast and loose with procedure and gets its fingers burnt. So let's look at baby leave very quickly. There was, I think, a vote on February the 1st. Harriet Harman initiated a debate. I think there was something in the region of 32 speakers, none of whom dissented from the idea of proxy voting in relationship to a very narrowly drawn situation around uh, maternity baby leave. Uh, the government didn't put in the government whip's office didn't put any speakers against the motion. Neither did the opposition whip's office, and I think there are often bigger conservatives in the opposition whip's <laughs> office than there are in the government whip's office. And I've said that to their chief whip. And so it was passed. Uh, the procedure committee came up with a very sensible set of recommendations. And then, of course, uh, the government put the brakes on, and then you have this sort of chaotic situation with a pairing with a pair, pair broken, and I think it is almost inevitable now that you will have proxy voting in, in relation to maternity, to maternity leave. And then the second thing is, I think the, 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 the upskirting bill was an, another classic example of the government manipulating the private members' bill process. It is absolute nonsense to take a bill... Just because it sounds perfectly good and it is a perfectly good bill and it's an admirable bill and so, well, it doesn't need second reading, we'll just stick it into committee. And Chris Choate was absolutely right to, to shout object. It is not for the government to determine what the House should debate in relation to whether or not we have a second reading. We have second readings for a reason. So a bill can be explored, ministers can be questioned. And for anyone who thinks that uh, it, was a good, it wasn't a good idea to block it. They should read, I think it was Lord Panic's article, two weeks later in the Times, when he said, he dedicated half a page to say, although the, 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 the sentiments and motives behind this bill are laudable, it is possibly one of the worst bills he has ever seen drafted. So I think if you want to have a go at procedure, that is fair enough. But government is largely responsible for, I think, the chaos and mistrust around private members' bills and they played, tried to play fast and loose with, with proxy voting, hoping that they'd say a few warm words and it would go away. But their capacity, as I say, to balls things up, is, all governments, <laughs> is, is, is almost 
um, beyond compare. <laughs> I think um, one of the things the procedure committee picked up on around private notice bills uh, procedure is around to what extent the public understand what's going on. And I think you've argued that it would be better if the system were bore more relation to what the public thinks is going on when it watches MPs bringing forward legislation that there should be a realistic chance of that becoming law. I was just going to move on to, to Mark to say you spend your life trying to explain Parliament um, to the public. How, how do you think Parliament's doing on that in relation to these sorts of things? Well, uh, I, as you say, I've spent a disturbing proportion of my life watching private members build Fridays now, uh, which I've been doing since like 2002. Um, and it used to be the joke that on a private member's Bill Friday in the Commons, no one could hear you scream. <laughs> no one was watching. These were proceedings that took place in almost total lack of scrutiny. And that simply isn't true anymore. And I'm not sure that that, that particular penny has dropped with quite a lot of MPs. There are, since particularly the Iraq war, there's been a considerable uptake, mostly sustained, in the viewership of BBC Parliament. And uh, there's also parliamenttv.live, Parliament the website that broadcasts a huge variety of parliamentary procedures as well. So even the most obscure parliamentary proceeding now has considerable numbers of people watching it. Then you factor in the idea that a lot of private members' bills are now backed up by social media campaigns, and there'll be a hashtag for this and a hashtag for that, and people will get quite attached to bills. There was, for example, reasonably recently, a private member's bill to ban hospitals from charging excessive parking fees. And as someone who spent a fair amount of time in hospital car parks looking after various uh, ailing relatives in recent years, I've got some sympathy with that as an idea. And a lot of people care about that. And then you see it being talked out. And then you see it being talked out not just in a sort of procedural kick to stop something, but in a quite jocular sort of way. Will my right honourable friend give way? I'm delighted to give way to my honourable friend, who's a great expert in these matters. My honourable friend is being most generous with his time, and if I may say so, is making a most excellent speech. And two minutes slip by in sonorous parliamentary courtesies <laughs> before anything substantive is said, if indeed anything substantive is ever said at all during the, the, these proceedings. And if you care about an issue, and you're seeing it defeated in that way, not by a vote in the cold light of day, not by an actual argument in many cases, but by pure, organised, mannered, slightly chortling time-wasting. I think that's desperately damaging to the reputation of the House of Commons, and, it, and it's in a way it's treating voters who want to be engaged in the proceedings of Parliament with no respect whatsoever, because it's all being treated as an internal game that no one's watching. And people are now watching. Uh, you know, just, just look at the number of viral photographs of MPs with fingers up their noses that come up uh, in Prime Minister's Question Time. You'll see that actually it's much more closely scrutinised than people care to remember. So there's that point. The procedures around private members' bills, as Charles says, are completely impenetrable to a lot of people. It, it, the whole time-wasting game is something that you have to spend years following to really kind of appreciate the rhythms of it. Um, I would make a similar point, incidentally, about the treatment of amendments at report stage to major bills, which is another way in which procedural jiggery-pokery fr can frustrate something that may be very important from even getting to the wicket in Parliament. Uh, so that's another, and I know Charles's committee has taken a look at that, and it's all been batted casually aside again. But that's another one. But in general, if, if um, it's not so much that the rules are the problem sometimes. I think it's the attitude with which members deploy the rules 
the procedural game playing that utterly infuriates the watching public. And if, you wanted to, if I wanted to pick a single area, that would be it. Can I just add, I think what is so unattractive about private members' bills, and there have been some improvements in this parliament, so I think government is picking up that it was on pretty thin ice, is when you have the front bench making warm noises about the private members' bill, but the whip's office behind the scenes has stitched it up so it's talked out. I think that is a deeply, deeply unattractive exercise that brings the House into disrepute. Mm-hmm. But I'd add that I think the, the ideas that came out of Charles's committee for some kind of process to try and isolate private members' bills that had real head of steam behind them and get them in and get them a guaranteed vote uh, are very, very good ideas. But I think no government particularly wants an alternative source of legislation that's more coherent than an individual and his mates. I think... Sorry, we could really have a long discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do think that one of the solutions, if the government isn't going to adopt anything, is the House votes to take them on Tuesday and Wednesday evening, and then the government has to dip its hand in the blood and get the payroll vote to kill them. So you have them Tuesday evenings after the usual time of rising, and Wednesday evenings. It gives members of Parliament actually something to do on Tuesday and Wednesday nights who can't get home in their constituencies. And if you want to kill it off, you have to dip your hands in the blood properly. Very interesting. As you say, we could talk about this for a long time, but we will move on. Um, there were lots of facts and figures and, and data uh, in analysis presentation, and as she said, there's more in the report. And one of the things we're very conscious of in, in putting the report together was that it doesn't really make sense to talk about Parliament as a whole succeeding or failing, because that depends very much always on your viewpoint and what you think Parliament ought to be trying to achieve in a, in a particular point of view. But it is important, we think, that Parliament should understand itself and understand what it, is, what it is doing and what its processes are achieving and whether they are achieving the things that the House has decided they ought to be trying to achieve. So I know your committee does a lot with um, the data on parliamentary questions. More, you might like to comment on that, but more, more broadly, do you think Parliament collects the right data to understand whether it's doing its job well? Uh, probably not, but I don't think it's for Parliament to determine whether it's doing its job well. It's for organisations like yourself to determine, because if Parliament says we're doing our job well, people say, well, they would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Which is why I'm going to um, take the highlights out of this report and send it to my colleagues who sometimes feel a bit downtrodden and miserable, saying, do you realise we sit longer than almost any other Parliament in the Western <laughs> world, for example? And you actually do work quite hard, despite what people in the Daily Mail and the Sun and other newspapers say about you. I do think it's very interesting, though, after the Brexit vote, whatever side you're on, people were incredibly concerned that Parliament was going to be sidelined from the process, that it was all going to be bulldozed through, and as your report says, we debated it for 273 hours. And it is very, very difficult. Parliament is like water. It will get in everywhere. You can try and seal it out, but we do find a way to get in. So I'm greatly encouraged by your report, actually. Well, you know, I'll be honest, when, when Martin sent it to me and I saw it was 120 pages, being as Julian Critchley would describe it as a garagiste, I said, oh, for crying out loud, <laughs> 120 pages. And then actually it was a page turner. <laughs> so thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> And just to follow up on what you say there, so uh, obviously time is one measure of how Parliament gets engaged in things. What is, I mean, we, Alice also presented sort of stats about select committee engagement and Brexit and so on. Do you feel that the important debates 
have been had and that the system has worked. Because one of the things that I've really been thinking about in relation to select committee work on Brexit is that select committees are designed to manage party difference. You have the balance of members reflecting the balance in the House, and that's, that's what their procedure is designed to do. And Brexit is a, uh, an issue of a different sort, which cuts right across party lines. And apart from the Dexu committee that was set up following the vote, um, potentially the International Trade Committee, those, those committees were not set up with any thinking about people's sort of views on Brexit in mind. So how, how do you think Parliament's processes have been coping with dealing with an issue like Brexit, which is so... I mean, I think Parliament, to be honest, has done, has done pretty well. Um, it is the House of Commons' position, position at the moment as being fractious and unhappy and miserable, and yeah, at times it is, but actually it's, it's, it's holding up well. It realises that it has a huge responsibility to the nation, whatever side of the debate you're on, to try and get things right. And I do believe it is, it is rising to the challenge. The one thing I would say about select committees, which causes me a little personal concern, is I know it's up to my colleagues who they elect, but I wouldn't want to see select committee chairmanships become de facto the birth of four, former senior secretaries of state and ministers. I mean... You, you mentioned in your, in your presentation that there were some very effective former cabinet ministers, but I'm thinking of Andrew Tyree, never in government, mm-hmm. one of the most effective treasury selectmen chairs, Sarah Wollaston, Damien Collings, Tom Tugendhat, and others. So I, I do want to see select committees, by and large, remain the domain of the serious backbencher. There's a very interesting point, actually, about the way that the select committee chairs are elected now. Uh, Someone um, told me recently that at a meeting of the liaison committee, you know, the great convocation of all the select committee chairs, someone took a look at it and thought, hmm, it's the new centre party really, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, And what you've got to bear in mind is that when you have several candidates for a committee chair from one particular party, the choice of who wins is effectively in the hands of the other big Mm. party. And what that means is there's a predisposition to choosing the person who will be most awkward to their parent party from the other party, hence Sarah Williston, dare I say it, hence quite a number of the other names that were up on that uh, chart a little while ago. People look for someone who will both be good at the job and will not be a party pawn, and therefore we have select committee chairs who are mostly not pawns of their particular party leadership at the moment. And that if you like, gives us a necessary injection of independence to the select committee system, even if it wasn't an intended consequence. And the other thing to say is that the select committee chairs we've got now are about the best and most energetic crop I've ever seen. I can remember way back, I think it was the 2001 to 2005 Parliament, where the Work and Pensions Committee disappeared from view for months on end. And apparently the then chair was busy telling people he was terribly busy in his constituency, the people in Westminster, and telling the people in his constituency that he was terribly busy with this select committee work. But very little seemed to emerge in the meantime. And so we have, you know, you had a major departmental committee at a time when quite a lot was going on in that sphere, which seemed remarkably inactive, but I can never manage to quite get anybody to dare to say it out loud, uh, alas. But by and large now, that's almost impossible to imagine. Now that you have elected chairs and people are becoming more concerned with the working of the system and the Commons is becoming a bit more experienced at the idea of electing these folks, I don't think you really have any duds at all in the current crop. And just following up from, from what I was talking to Charles about in terms of Brexit and Parliament, our report shows a lot about 
the effect of Brexit and the effect of minority government on the government's legislative programme. Um, and as, as Alice was setting out, there's, there's lots more legislation to get through um, before uh, both primary and secondary to get through before we leave, ideally, I think, from the government's point of view, although some of it they've said can wait. Um, what's, what are you looking out for come the autumn? What are the pinch points going to be? Um, if you turn to page 35 in your hymnals, there's a very interesting chart of all the Brexit legislation, and the most interesting bit of that very interesting chart is when you look at the word migration bill. Everything else is a white paper or a second reading or whatever. Uh, this has absolutely nothing at all. And that's because it's the single most radioactive piece of Brexit legislation and also the most difficult to concoct until you have some notion of what kind of deal we're going to get. Uh, so I would highlight the migration bill, or indeed the migration green paper or white paper or whatever colour paper it happens to be, uh, when it emerges, because that will be uh, one hell of a ride for the uh, responsible minister. Um, so I'll, I'll start with that. Uh, Charles and his colleagues on the Procedure Committee have, developed, uh, have devised a very interesting sifting committee arrangement for looking at all the secondary legislation, and it will be very interesting to see how that plays out in, uh, in um, practice. Uh, a little bit further down the road, and this probably goes beyond the autumn, to be honest, is when we start getting all these wacky new trade treaties for the global Britain launching itself on the seas of international commerce that is, is going to follow Brexit, uh, I think the scrutiny of treaties is going to become a much more live issue for Parliament than it has ever been before. Normally it's a pretty perfunctory rubber-stamping exercise, but some of these treaties could be very, very big deals indeed, especially, for example, for British agriculture. If we're genuinely going to have uh, food imports at something approximating world prices, I predict that the farming community will take a lively interest in the resulting <laughs> treaties. Um, so there are those. Um, there's a generic problem with most Brexit legislation at the moment, which is that you're assembling a kit of parts to build an edifice that has yet to reach the design stage. So you need the widest possible powers, and that instinctively gets people's hackles up. Uh, so that issue will recur again and again and again until we have an actual deal in front of us and know what we're actually talking about. Um, so those, those are the main ones at the moment. I also predict that the money will be a hell of an issue if we're still sending billions to Brussels after Brexit. Um, that is something that is not going to be allowed to pass lightly. Uh, so just a few little thoughts. A few things to look forward to. Um, and obviously uh, Mark's picked up on Parliament potentially changing, wanting to change the role that it plays in, in international treaties. Are there other things which your committee is reflecting on about Parliament's role um, post-Brexit? So obviously lots of busyness up to March 2019, likely further busyness in the transition period. I, I wonder, I know the House of Lords is thinking at the moment about its committee system. Um, it needs to because it's such a large proportion of it is, is devoted to scrutiny of EU legislation. But what are the, where in Parliament is the thinking going on about what Parliament's role is going to be post-Brexit. Uh, is that for you? It's, I don't, it's yes and no, because I think Parliament will arrive at that point. Parliament is a living body, in a sense, and my colleagues and collectively will, will, will come to that point. I say Parliament is like water. It doesn't need to be offered a role. It will find a role to it for itself. So I am actually, if I'm allowed to say, because it was a much overused word, relaxed about <laughs> that because it will happen. I mean, I have huge confidence in Parliament. I mean, governments come and go, but Parliament is a constant, and it has stood the test of time for at least 350 years without too much upheaval, 
and, and it, I suspect it will continue to do so. It is, it is one of our great achievements. I went to one of your events many years ago. It was in 2010. It was at the start of the coalition and all the wise sages around their perm sector said no coalition in Europe lasts more than three years because they ran out of things to do. So this won't. And of course, as we know, it lasted five years. And it lasted five years because we've done democracy really well for 350 years. In a way, I'm afraid most parts of Western Europe haven't. I'm not afraid, it's a fact. So, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on Parliament getting it right. Very good. I'm going to take that opportunity to open the floor for questions. Anyone want to question either Alice, anything that is in the report, or any of the things which our panellists have said so far? We have roving mics. So, can take this gentleman here. Thank you, Titus Alexander, Democracy Matters. We've got two questions, one in relationship to the time it takes to respond to reports, because when you take account of the time it takes to write them and then publish them and then respond, they're basically producing history. So the question to Alice is whether you looked at um, the responses to reports and the quality of response and how much of reports that were produced actually did anything in the real world, <laughs> apart from adding to the archives. And the question to, Chris, to Charles is about civic engagement in the process, because I've been involved in the House of Lords citizenship report and there was a citizen's debate around that, but whether there isn't a way in which we can involve citizens much more in that deliberative stage and the consideration of reports, because although Parliament works very well among itself, I don't think it connects very well with citizens. I think we'll do questions in groups of three. That was two, so we'll take one more from this. <laughs> uh, Christopher Foster, <clears throat> um, a member of uh, BGI, British Government at a government initiative, though not speaking for them, speaking for myself. Uh, by chance, I read it yesterday, the full report, which I don't imagine that many people my age, it's quite easy to find time to read full reports 100 pages long. And it's very well written, it's very well organised, uh, and it's a lot of great interest in it. My only criticism of the conclusions which I think underplay a lot of what's actually in the report. Uh, and that, but that I won't ask a question about as such. And um, there were some chapters, secondary, and here I'm beginning to answer, ask questions. Uh, I thought that the chapter on, on secondaries more or less demonstrated unequivocally that there was too much secondary legislation uh, it was under-assessed, under-scrutinised, and the less we have, the better. That should be, and I'd like to ask your opinion on that. Um, the primary um, legislation, I was rather, there was an awful lot in it, but I think it's um, one or two points which I think I would like again ask your opinion on. Um, for reasons which are well explained, it doesn't go back much in time, but it's not all that long ago that um, you had a, um, a good, a green paper and possibly a white paper. Um, there's hardly ever one now which has the classic function of introducing a bill. First, the green paper which sets out what is it going to be about? 
and then with the white paper, which really does say a lot about it, so that everybody, the public as well as Parliament itself, can know what's what should be there and what is there. Perhaps as a, as a parliamentarian you could comment on your, what that does to the experience of trying to then scrutinise something that comes forward as, as, as a piece of legislation. I think that is a thing we should get back. And I would also add, given just how many very, very expensive bills, uh, yet again we're hearing about HS2, uh, there should be an attempt to, to um, do you agree with this, to at cost in advance how much bills are going to cost. That should be from the very beginning, from the green paper, which should be the first thing that appears in Parliament. There should be an attempt to work out, uh, approximate what the cost will be. And as the bill goes on, that should improve through green and white papers. And when the bill enters Parliament, uh, again, it should be costed, what it's got implication, what its delivery, its implementation is going to cost. And uh, also at the same time, when it enters Parliament, something which I know the better government has gone on about for ages, I think also the Hansard Society, uh, it should be complete. The idea that you have bills which are added to, as you are, as we watch, seems to me to be you know, not a good basis. Indeed. Um, Alice, can I start you, start you off to kick in um, yes. on the question about uh, government responses? Yes, and the question about select committees more broadly. So I think the select committees chapter of this report was the one that we probably struggled with the most. And that's partly because there is so much that you can talk about. And it's also because of the kind of question that I think you're, you're getting at, which is how do you actually try and measure the impact that select committees and all of their work have, have had? And that is an incredibly complicated question. And, and one of the things that we say in the report is that it's, it's really difficult to measure something. If you have uh, government pick up on something that has been recommended by a select committee, and make that change to a, to a policy or to the implementation of a policy, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is the work of the select committee that has forced that change. It could be that the government was going to do it anyway. It could be that there's been some kind of outside pressure from, from other places. So that's just sort of one example of how difficult it is to um, measure that kind of, of impact. So as I say, I think that's that's a question that we really struggled with when we were writing this report and I think it's a question that we will want to continue um, to think about uh, as, we, as we kind of do the next one. But certainly um, things like sort of, you know, government response times and things, they perhaps give you some indication of whether government feels as though it really needs to respond committee to committees quite quickly. That sort of gets at the idea of select committee impact, but ultimately the government might simply decide it wants to do what it wants to do. Um, so it's a very long-winded way of saying it's really difficult. <laughs> um, Charles, there's quite a lot of different points there for you. Um, I think I can just deal with them, though. Um, the, this is why the report is so useful, is because it actually flushes out the government in relation to the time it takes to respond to reports. So I sometimes grumble to Martin, for example, that we've waited three months for a response to our proxy leave report, which actually the government asked us to produce. But that's in my own little silo of grumbling. And now I can see that there's plenty of reasons for my chairs, fellow chairs, 
to, to, to grumble, <laughs> and then we can start putting pressure on government. I imagine Sarah Wilson, who chairs the liaison committee as well as the Health Select Committee, will take a keen interest in this, and, and we'd be happy on the Procedure Committee to take it up on her behalf. Um, as far as the approach... Um, in relation to primary legislation, that's a very classical approach that I, I, I share. When I was a researcher in 92, 93, there was a green paper which was reasons why we think you might want to do this. The white paper was notice of intent and the ambition, and then you would go second, third reading, so on and so forth. Uh, I think there's too much legislation. I think it's, it's, it's a sign of political virility. We've had so many Home Office bills since I've been an MP, and the powers in those bills exist in other bills. They're not exercised, but the government must be seen to be doing something. So I'm rather delighted that we've had, outside Brexit, a rather light legislative mm. load, because we actually don't need loads and loads of legislation mm. all the time to be effective as, as a government and as a parliament. So, yeah... Primary legislation does, does need a rethink. Unfortunately, with the growth of, with the growth of media, the growth of media outlets, it is seen by politicians as a very effective way of demonstrating virility. In relation to public engagement, obviously there's the petition committees. There is these various organisations that bombard us with the views and concerns of interested parties. They work for you and others. There are select committees, obviously, take much wider evidence than they used to from, from members of the public and professional bodies who represent their members. There's also, of course, when a bill goes into its committee stage, there is the scrutiny before it goes before members of parliament where interested parties are invited in to be cross-examined by the various people on that committee. So I think there is a high level, a good level of public engagement. I think if we promoted consultations better, there would be... Um, a, a higher take up from the public I, I, I'm always mindful though that the public actually do elect us to, to, to make the big decisions on, on their behalf and I think as we've just discovered there may not be another referendum for decades and decades and decades because I, I'm but now beginning to sign up to Ken Clark's view that in a parliamentary just democracy perhaps referendums are not the best way of doing things but um, so but I mean we're always happy to, 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 to hear from people about how things can be improved because the petitions committee was something that that the government brand as being joint between government and parliament rubbish we completely took it off and as you know the members of the select committee are members of parliament and it's chaired by a member of parliament further questions uh, there's a gentleman here Thank you. John Davis from the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association UK. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, doing our work, engaging with other parliaments around the Commonwealth and beyond, it's fantastically useful to have uh, this brought together in this way. So thank you for helping us do our work. So two thoughts, not least because it is the first one, about going forward about things that I see as someone relatively new to Parliament, Parliament spending a lot of its energy and the members of Parliament spending a lot of their energy on, which understandably, but interestingly, aren't captured here. One is my small niche area of, sort of international engagement, and I think in terms of when the UK talks a lot about soft power, the UK Parliament is a very powerful asset, and its members are a powerful asset, and that's, again, understandably, I don't think, apologies, I haven't read the whole report, but it doesn't come through. So I think that's an important but small uh, piece of work that Parliament does, and members of Parliament spend time doing. For example, talking about the work of public accounts committees overseas. The other part, though, much more significant, I suppose, is constituency work. Now, again, I don't know in terms of a data-driven uh, monitor or report how you 
measure that in a useful way, but it is critical, certainly for members of the lower house. And again, trying to find some way about the relative time, significance, impact, public perception of that crucial work, I think would be an interesting sort of adjunct, if not part of the monitor itself. Peter on the back row. Peter, former director here and uh, Commissioner of Public Appointment. Could I add to my congratulations? I think it's an absolutely superb report, um, fascinating in so many ways. Could I um, go to one of the charts which you had, Alice, which was the sharp increase in urgent questions, which is Mm. the the current speaker, John Berker, and has resulted historically in a change that I remember during the minor strike. Um, where there was practically no discussion on the floor of the House of the minor strike from week after week, because it didn't sue either Margaret Thatcher or Neil Kinnock for 20 different reasons to have a discussion. Much to the frustration of Jack Butterall, the then Speaker, I don't want to say. He, he, but he didn't feel he could do that, and, and that's clearly really changed. My question is that, in a sense, is the kind of day programme, news night aspect of Parliament, the urgent thing immediately being flashed up, the discussion of it. The speaker is very attuned to what the latest controversy is and concern. That's fine. But does it actually lead later to sustained engagement with issues? Mm -hmm. the, 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 my query, partly I think my current job, is that when something is um, high profile, it, it's get, it, get, it gets raised, in my case, the Office of Students earlier this year. But there isn't particularly sustained engagement of the public bodies, say, throughout the rest of the year, unless they are particularly controversial. There's a whole aspect of government and public life which is still on the street of town. Should we have one more? The other gentleman on the back row, Adele. Martin Donnelly, former civil servant. Um, talking about committees, have you considered, in the context of this really very timely overview of what Parliament does, whether there is more scope for other committees to draw on the expertise of the National Audit Office to actually provide them with serious additional uh, objective input to problems uh, which can then set up a rather deeper and, and potentially even more effective dialogue between committees and um, departments. Okay, I'm going to think I'm going to come to Mark first to deal with it. Well, taking that last one first, um, I think that an awful lot of other committee chairs cast covetous eyes on the level of support <laughs> that the Public Accounts Committee and, to a lesser extent, Environmental Audit get from the National Audit Office and would occasionally, at least, like to be able to whistle them up to do a piece of work for themselves. Uh, I imagine that the National Audit Office would rather like to suggest that in that case they need more auditors or whatever else they have <laughs> in order to facilitate that, but it doesn't strike me as a bad idea at all. Um, Peter's point, um, absolutely, the, the, the whole shape of Parliament has completely been changed by what I occasionally think of as the Burko effect. Uh, his increased willingness to allow urgent questions not only means there are more urgent questions, it also means that ministers are much more likely to preemptively come to the House to explain themselves without um, opening themselves to accusations that they had to be dragged there by the scruff of the neck. So the, the, the good old days when you know, the, the country could be erupting in violence and disaster and could be striking everywhere and in the Chamber of the Commons it was the committee stage of the Government of Wales Bill, uh, that, that's now over. You know, important legislative business still goes on, 
that there is a chance for the Commons to contribute to the news agenda much more than was previously the case, and I think that is quite a valuable thing for the Commons itself. Sustained engagement with outside bodies is, is something that I think is actually some, perhaps most properly the, the, the role of some of the select committees. That's probably the route through which that would best happen. Um, on constituency engagement, um, I go back and forth on this. At one level, I think it is far harder now than it ever was before for an MP to make a kind of annual state visit to their constituency and otherwise just dwell entirely in SW1. Uh, very few people could survive that electorally now, far fewer certainly than, than beforehand. On the other hand, an MP surely has to be more than a kind of super councillor. Uh, while constituency engagement is important in highlighting issues that maybe otherwise you wouldn't trip over and understanding that there's a real problem with this, that or the other, at the same time MPs are there as lawmakers and they need to be able to devote a substantial proportion of their time to that function. I'm not sure how you strike that balance. I suspect the more marginal your constituency, the more of a super councillor you have to be. But we still need lawmakers looking at the making of the law and, uh, if necessary, being a bit awkward about not just lazily waving through some piece of legislation because their uh, elders and betters in their party want it. Two quick comments from me just about our thinking in the report so far and what we might do next year. One is on the PAC itself, which is, is quite difficult to put into quite a lot of the charts we've done because it works differently and it meets more frequently and it publishes more reports but for good reason because it has this support from the NAO and so on. So we have chosen to exclude the PAC from quite a lot of our analysis and I think something we would like to do next year is to look more closely at the PAC itself and, and how it works because as you say it is a very interesting model for Parliament and there is always this question. I remember when I was a second clerk on the International Development Committee there was always the question of whether we could get more input from the NAO and there was always the, you know, what was the attitude of the chair of the PAC to that and, and there was always a negotiation, so it is definitely a perennial issue. If I could add one little thought, actually, I'd, I'd quite like to see select committees produce a brief annual report saying where they think they had or didn't have impact every year. I think that would be quite a useful addition to the summer human knowledge. It would. I mean, the, certainly when I, again... Reminiscing, there used to be an exercise whereby committees reported against their 10 core tasks um, to the liaison committee to say what they thought they'd done in each of the things that the liaison committee thought that committees might want to do, obviously it being up to committees to decide how to direct themselves. That was always very um, sort of perfunctory, staff-driven exercise which didn't really achieve anything. Something more focused on actual impact, I think, would be quite, inter quite interesting. Um, the other point I was just going to make about was about constituency work, which, as you say, is quite difficult to get at from a data point of view. Something we do hope to do next time around, possibly, is to work a little bit more with IPSA um, to understand some of the data around spending, which is obviously different according to you know, how far people are travelling to get to Westminster um, and how they different models that members use in terms of balancing their staff between Westminster and their constituency and things like that. So we do you, you know, hope to do a little bit more thinking about that? But you're right, it's a gap at the moment. Mm. Can I just add, it's a really important point, and I know this is something that Charles feels very strongly about, that in order for members of Parliament to be legislators, and I think that's a very good point, they need to be, one, paid properly, and they need to have the resourcing for their proper staffing, 
constituencies, Westminster researchers, but more, in my view, like the United States, because it varies hugely. My constituency of Dulwich and West Norwood, my MP, has, I think, eight um, um, project workers. Other MPs I know have three. And it's up to a member to decide how to use their staffing well, project, and it's quite interesting to see how they make those choices. Well, I'm A, a control freak, and, um, and B, Surely. Uh, I'm not a great fan of, of making work for myself, just working the whole day through, achieving not a great deal. And I just want to say this with a wry smile, casework canvassing was the buzzword a few years ago, and you, you go and knock on doors and you introduce yourself, have you got anything you'd like me to help you with? So I thought of sudden rush of blood, foolhardiness to the head, I'd go and do this. You knock on these poor people's door, hello, I'm Charles Walker MP. I'm just wondering if you've got anything you'd like my help with. And these poor people, so, God, I've got to think of something for this poor young man. What is it? What is it? And it's the most extraordinary waste of time. It's like your doctor knocking on the door, so you're feeling ill. Um, they know where to find me for crying out loud. And I do think some of them, you just sit there. And I, I have a relatively large majority, but I, I sit there, sort of the blood draining from my face when I hear the sort of horror stories of that, that my, 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 some of my colleagues subject themselves to. But this is what I want to say to Peter. You're absolutely right. Urgent questions and statements. I'm entirely uh, supportive of more urgent questions. I love to see Parliament flexing its muscle. But does it lead to sustained engagement with the issue? I'm not entirely sure. Members of Parliament um, <coughs> are known for having a very beady eye towards the TV cameras and, and newsprint and the internet. So sometimes... Yes, it, it makes a great headline, but where does it go after that? There's also another issue about urgent questions and statements. We have more and more of them. Then they eat into the time mm. for scrutinising government legislation. And your report ma makes absolutely clear there is, there is no provision of injury time, unless the government want to have that injury time, and they're very good at extending the sitting day. So I think there is a question, an mm. issue around that. The Commonwealth, it drives me insane when I read stories in some of our newspapers attacking the Speaker of the House of Commons for going and selling our democracy around the world because our democracy is held in huge esteem. As chairman of the Procedure Committee, I am visited regularly by uh, delegations from countries across the world. I was recently visited by the Speaker of the French Parliament, the French Assembly. He was astounded that we have urgent questions, opposition day, backbench business, backbench legislation. His eyes were gleaming. I mean, we don't know what we've got here. Yes, it could always be better. Yes, let's be demanding of it. Let's criticise it. But please understand, we have something that is incredibly special and is hugely well regarded around the world, and many countries want to replicate it. They want to replicate, actually, still, the power that members of Parliament have, despite the fact that over the last 120 years we've given a lot of that power away to government. So I hope I've answered those questions in a sort of rather rambling way. Alice, did you want to add something? I was just going to pick up on, on Charles's point, actually, about sort of trade-offs in the use of, of parliamentary time. And actually, one of the things that's been quite interesting in looking at urgent questions and emergency debates has actually less been what those things have led to, but actually what has led to the urgent questions and emergency debates in the first place. So, for example, we've seen things like um, the SNP, 
uh, being rather upset at the amount of time that was available for the debate of certain um, amendments to the EU withdrawal bill, which led to sort of all sorts of complications and then was later manifested in sort of urgent questions and emergency debates. So there is something quite interesting as well, actually, about how sort of the use or curtailment of parliamentary time in, in one area can actually pop up somewhere else. Good point. Ruth um, and then Jill... Thank you, Ruth Dixon um, from Oxford University. I really want to add my congratulations for the report. Um, and I haven't read all of it in detail, but I wanted to ask uh, whether you'll look more at public bill committees in the future. And, um, and I wanted to ask the panel really whether you see scope for um, making them more effective. I should draw attention to the fact that Ruth is one of the two uh, uh, contributors to this section in the primary uh, legislation chapter, which has a really wonderful chart of how the withdrawal bill changed via amendment over time. I recommend it to you. I can't remember what page it's on. But. Uh, Jill? So I'm Jill Rutter. I'm uh, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government, so I shouldn't really be asking you a question. But um, one of the things we've seen, and Charles is sort of waxed very lyrical about uh, how good Parliament is its job, but one of the things we have seen in this session is a government's really quite reluctant to engage Parliament on Brexit, being forced to engage, you know, we saw the Article 50 thing before the election then, but actually refusing to provide what seems to be quite legitimate information, either to select committees where Dominic Raab seems a bit keener than David Davis was to give useful information to the the EU committee, we had the big rows and the humble address procedures, which all look a bit ludicrous about getting the sort of information on the government's sexual analyses, which did or didn't exist. And I just wondered what reflections based on that you have about whether Parliament has the right powers to require government to give it the information it needs to bring back bills. I mean, the fact that governments could put the trade and customs bills effectively on ice for five months because they were ducking inconvenient amendments. You know, actually, have we got the balance of powers between Parliament that's trying to do its job on one of the most important issues facing the country and a government that actually wants to minimise Parliament and manipulate Parliament into producing the right result for perfectly understandable reasons. Is that right and how is Parliament going to sort of play through that in the coming months? And there's one gentleman on the back row there. Um, Craig Prescott, the University of Winchester. Um, we quite like Parliament scrutinising primary legislation. We'd love it to do better with secondary legislation. We like Parliament to scrutinise the government. We'd like it to do all these things as well as it does at the moment and maybe do them even better. But how can that happen if the number of MPs is reduced by 50 and the number of members of the House of Lords is arguably reduced to 600, as in the Burns report? because there'll literally be fewer bodies around to do all these things. Thank you. Mark, do you want to kick off with Jill's question? Yeah, Jill's point, um, I think the short answer is yes, they clearly need more systematic powers to extract documents. Government can't be done in an echo chamber. The ministers have to have some kind of ability to have discussions in private, but there comes a point when documents should be extracted. And having to use the humble address procedure, which again to the outside world looks more than slightly bizarre, 
um, I, I think doesn't do Parliament or government any good. And of course, we're not just talking about documents, we're also talking about individuals. The um, case of um, Dominic Cummings remains live at the moment. He's refused to appear before the uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sports uh, fake news inquiry, and they are in the process of attempting to get a some kind of resolution to that. It's, I think, before the Privileges Committee at the moment, and no one really quite knows what happens. If um, they say he ought to come, and he says he's not going to, no one has a power of arrest. Are they really going to send the Sergeant-at-Arms in full regalia to what would probably be a televised shouting match with Mr. Ra- uh, Mr. Ra- Mr. Cummings shouting out of his window that he's not going to come and the Sergeant-at-Arms shaking his fist or waving his sword below? Can you imagine the spectacle? It would look ridiculous. Uh, and what would be the punishment? And would it be human rights compliant? And would you then have the courts deciding whether Parliament had indeed given Mr Cummings a reasonable opportunity to come along, etc., etc.? The complications behind this are enormous, but we are reaching the point where we rather need to bite the bullet, I think, and sort out what the powers of select committees over-receiving evidence, over-summoning individuals actually are. Because if people can effectively put up two fingers to Parliament and say no, then... Yeah, what's the point of any of it, really? So I'd, I'd certainly go uh, very far on that one. Reductions in the size of the house, houses indeed. Um, yes, I suppose you do wonder really where the warm bodies are going to come from, especially since I don't think there's any proposal to reduce the number of ministers in yeah. proportion to the reduction of the size of the house. So you'll have uh, yeah, the, the grip of the executive across the windpipe yeah. of Parliament will be that little bit tighter once you have the same number of ministers in a 600-seat House of Commons. Um, that's leaving aside all the very other very interesting implications of um, constituency boundaries being totally withdrawn, but that's another story. Uh, similarly, in the House of Lords, I mean, there is quite a large inactive membership of the House of Lords. I don't know if the effects of uh, a reduction in size would be quite so noticeable in the House of Lords as they are in the Commons. I suppose one way to make a bit of time might be to uh, find a way to reduce that 48 hours that people spend standing in the lobbies. This is always defended as this is where you get a chance to speak to ministers while they're standing around. But it seems to me that's an awful lot of time standing around. It's fabulous. Uh, and it's also, uh, going back to the, the, the baby leave point, the fact that you know, heavily pregnant members of Parliament were, were trooping through the lobbies like, like some sort of Iron Man triathlon exercise for hours on end seems to me to be a bit unfortunate as well. Charles, do you want to ask uh, both of those as well? Yeah, uh, Jill, you, you, your question plays to all my prejudices because <laughs> we do draw our executive from, from Parliament and I do find it incredible when some of my colleagues on both sides of the House have had enormously successful ministerial careers pretty much pushing the boot into Parliament, full of obfuscation. And then when they leave frontline ministerial office, they suddenly discover the tongue in their head and they become these great voices of independent thinking. I discount a lot of what they say for the reason that when they were in government, they didn't behave in a particularly good way towards Parliament. So, yeah, I mean, you've also got to understand the government may not have the information to produce when it's asked to produce it as well. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it may not. So does Parliament need more powers to extract information? It might do. But again, what, what is the ultimate power Parliament has when dealing with government? It is the power of embarrassment. It's the power to make ministers, secretaries of state look small and silly, which is not something I like to do often, 
but I know in our own experience <laughs> as a committee, we, when we were looking at Every performance of departments in ask, an, answering questions, the first time we summoned a minister, we, 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 we were sent a junior minister with a middle-ranking civil servant, and it was a car crash. And then the Secretary of State was summoned, and this happened one more time, and we're now treated with the utmost respect. <laughs> so I think Parliament has the power to embarrass. Um, on bill committees, I think if we had the better drafting of bills at second reading, a better process before we got to that bill on the floor of the House through green papers, white papers, we would get a better committee process. I want to go back and look at uh, secondary legislation. The sifting committee around the EU withdrawal bill should be applied to all bits of secondary legislation because what was relevant 20 years ago may not be relevant now. So we have affirmative SIs coming out of a an Act of Parliament that was passed 20 years ago, which are no longer contentious, but some of those negative SIs will be much more in play. And the, the, the problem we have now is that each of these committees takes an hour and a half, and there's almost a competition between the various front benches as to whether they can get them to last under five minutes, which suggests to me they're not doing their job properly. So if we had a sifting committee with a downward and upward ratchet, because as you know, the EU withdrawal bill, there's only an upward ratchet. It can recommend, recommend a negative to affirmative, but it can't recommend an affirmative go down to a negative. So we need a two-way ratchet. And as far as numbers are concerned, I mean, the whole cost of politics argument was a load of nonsense. Um, it, was, it, was, it was done for public consumption. And I mean, the idea that reducing the House of Commons by 50 is somehow going to answer all the public's concerns about the cost of politics, if there were any concerns anyway, really, accepting the expenses. It is just a load of nonsense. And of course, if, if there was a corresponding reduction in the ministerial payroll by 8%, I'd be more relaxed about it. Indeed, I did try to amend the legislation in 2011 to ensure that outcome. Unsurprisingly, it was defeated. But So we reduced the number of MPs, thereby increasing the concentration of patronage. I mean, it is, it is, it's crazy. The House of Lords, uh, I'm more relaxed about reducing the size of, of, of the House of Lords, but the House of Commons, 650, is a number that I'm more than comfortable living with. We did actually do quite a lot of analysis of um, uh, the size of the... We tried to look at the size of the payroll vote, and mm. specifically the number of people who are not eligible to sit on committees, and we found it surprisingly difficult to come up with a conclusive number of the people who weren't eligible to sit on committees. What we very roughly found, but didn't make it into the report because we weren't sort of quite confident enough around, around it, was that in the Commons, most MPs who are not in some capacity on a payroll vote or in a position which would make them ineligible uh, sit on a committee. Uh, so a number sit on more than one committee. I mean, some for, for reasons like Charles sits on the liaison committee as well as by virtue of being a chair. Um, some sit on more than one uh, departmental select committee, which is a big ask, I think, of a member, given the time of, often involved in those uh, these days. And again, as you say, the, um, Mark, in the Lords, it is much more unusual for anyone to sit on more than one committee because they were just, in fact, there they've uh, reduced the number of years for which uh, a peer can sit on a committee uh, from four to three in order to give more peers the chance to sit on a committee. So. Can I say uh, the, one other point? The, the, the sort of proliferation of PPSs, parliamentary private secretaries, in the 50s and 60s, as I'm sure Peter Riddell will know, you could be a PPS and vote against the government and not lose your position, as long as you weren't voting, obviously, against your own de department. 
And I think the growth of PPS is to, at one stage, I think we had 70 or 80 of them. It was just nonsense, utter nonsense. And now the opposition have PPSs as well. I mean, <laughs> utter rubbish. I've got the number of paid ministers is fixed by... Yeah. Um, but we now have eight unpaid ministers, a phenomenon created seamlessly from there to Brown mm. to Cameron to Theresa May. Not a fan of that either. And no, 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 that adds to your point. Yeah. And they're not actually unpaid because they all have to have private secretaries and stuff. Yeah. And if you're going to do a job, you should be paid to do it. I say that as a trade unionist vice chairman of the 1922 committee. Mm. Alex, did you want to make any points about uh, uh, Ruth's question on um, what we might do on public <coughs> bill bill committees? committees. Um, and then I think we'll have to draw to a close, I'm I afraid. think, actually, so Ruth, and I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, I don't have much of an answer for you other than that is an excellent idea, um, and it's something that we should definitely think about. So that is already on my list of things to look at next year. Uh, well, we're, on that note, I think I um, will thank you uh, again all for coming, and I hope you will join me in thanking Alice and the panel uh, for the event today.